Good morning to everyone in the venue and here in the auditorium, and thanks, Tim Stratton, for inviting me to take it away. It's upon us. You know, I'd like to highlight one additional announcement in our handout, though, this morning, if I may. For all of the men um, coming up here this Wednesday, there's a new Ford series titled Purity of a Warrior, and sexual purity is it's every man's battle. And I just want to highlight this for a moment because for five or six weeks, uh, Pastor Brian and the men's ministry team will be leading that. And I, I, I want to encourage any man who is struggling in that area or just needs a, um, a brush up, a strengthening of their tools in that area to, to know that they have um, what it takes for the battle and to, to guard ourselves in a world that is... Con- just constantly bombarding us. I'd encourage you to consider going to that. Even if you're not regularly a part of Men's Forge, you'd be more than welcome to join us on Wednesday morning as Pastor Brian and his team leads that uh, series on purity of a warrior. That'll be the, this coming Wednesday. Well, so good to be together here today as we open up a new series. Uh, did you enjoy the last series in social? I hope you did. We... Uh, Yeah, I got a lot of good feedback on that. I hope it was helpful for relationships. Uh, Obviously, a a lot of ongoing work that still needs to happen in all of our most important relationships. And one of the difficulties of uh, these church series that we do is they always bring up things that we need to work on more. And and you might still be there, and that's just fine. Continue to be there. And hopefully that can be something as I adjust this. I'm sorry. Okay, hopefully that's better. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, that should be better. Hopefully that'll be a series, though, that continues to help you emotionally and in your relationships. Uh, Today we're going to take kind of a a sharp right turn. That last series was emotionally deep. It was relationally deep. Today's series, though, that we begin for the next seven weeks is going to be intellectually deep. It's titled, I Believe in God, But. And it'll culminate on Resurrection Sunday on Easter in which we look at a number of the most common and most challenging questions to faith in Christ. Questions like, I believe in God, but hasn't science disproved the Bible? I believe in God, but there's so much evil in the world. How could there be an all-loving, all-powerful God with so much evil in the world? Have you ever heard that one? I believe in God, but I'm not sure if I can have confidence in the Bible. It seems like there's some inconsistencies in the Bible. What do I do with those? I believe in God, but why does the church talk so much about sex? I I mean, that's a common one in our culture. I believe in God, but do you really believe that Jesus rose from the grave? You you can't tell me you actually believe that a dead man rose. We're going to hit those kinds of questions over these coming weeks. No taboos on those questions, no ducking the difficult conversations, the difficult questions, because we believe to the difficult questions that come up in our culture today, there are better answers. We believe that. And we think that this message series can be really helpful for many of us in this room, perhaps many in your neighborhood, many of your classmates who are likewise asking questions. I think of three different categories of people as we begin this series. First, I think of people outside of the church who are not really sure what they believe spiritually or they might have some interest in Jesus, 
but they wouldn't see him as Lord. They wouldn't see him as Savior. They see him as a good moral teacher. And one of the things, though, that stops them from believing more about Christ is they have some deep-seated intellectual question that no one has taken the time to answer. And until that question gets answered, they can't move forward. I know because I was one of those people. And until I got certain questions answered, I couldn't move forward with Christ, which I did as an adult. There's another group of people, though, that I think of. It's adults in the church who believe in Christ, who acknowledge Him as their Lord, as their King, as their Savior, but they have these nagging questions that come up from time to time, and they wish they could push them down and suppress them, and for a time we do, and then all of a sudden, at the most inopportune times, like a jack-in-the-box, they pop up, and they scare us once again, and they erode confidence in faith if they are not dealt with. A third reason that we're doing this series, and a third category of people that I think about, is our children. We do a series like this for no other reason than because we love our kids. Seriously. Our middle school kids, our high school kids, our college students, and sometimes much younger than any of those, are pummeled with constant questions about the veracity, the truthfulness of the Christian faith, regularly attacked both by media, by social media, by their universities, by their schools. And in our increasingly postmodern, post-Christian culture, it is necessary to talk about these for the benefit of our kids. Now, I recognize that some in the church don't care for these kinds of questions, don't care for these kinds of messages, because they do require you to put on your thinking cap a little bit more. And, and I'll tell you on the front end that if you're not willing to do that on the front of each message, you won't get as much out of these messages as you could. If we come into church on a Sunday after Sunday basis and we kind of passively deal with Sunday morning and say, okay, it's fine, when are you going to inspire me, Adrian? You won't get much out of these. I do pray there will be some inspiration. I know there will be instruction and equipping, but you'll get a whole lot more out of these messages if you come in ready to learn, to receive clear answers from the questions though, that we ask. And in the process of engaging these questions, what I have found over the years is I engage these questions both when I first became a Christian and thereafter as I've engaged these questions, they become, the answers become like a Red Bull energy drink for your faith. I mean, they become protein for your faith. When you recognize that we have great reasons to believe what we believe, that it's not a blind leap devoid of evidence, but we have great reasons to believe what we believe, that grants us more confidence every day. Moreover, it gives us stability for the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys of life that are inevitable for us all. And so we're going to go after it. One more introductory note. I, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, as you all know, but I am smart enough to know that I cannot do this series on my own. And so the gentleman who just introduced me on that announcement video, Tim Stratton, will join me for two of these messages over these next seven weeks, and um, we'll also do one week that is a, a combined question and answer time, where you have an opportunity to ask whatever questions that you have 
in advance. So we'll get to that here in the coming weeks. Uh, you might choose to skip one of my messages. I hope you don't. But don't skip his, okay? Because this dude, Tim Stratton, who leads Free Thinking Ministries and used to be a pastor here at our church, he knows his stuff. He really knows his stuff in this area, and uh, he sharpens me on a regular basis, and I believe he'll really sharpen you when he speaks here in a couple weeks also. So today's question, let's get to today's question. Today's question is probably best posed through a conversation that I know many of you have had, and that I've had dozens of times over the years, and I had it again just a couple weeks ago. I was in an airport in Dallas after the red-eye flight from Quito, Ecuador, an overnight flight, and I got a stout cup of coffee and snuggled up with a good book and sat in a bookstore in the Dallas airport and was ready for some time to myself. When all of a sudden, a lovely woman sat down across from me and promptly began asking me what I was reading. And uh, we engaged in some small talk, and then we traded some book recommendations, and I'll just call this woman Mary. And Mary and I entered into what would be a couple hours of conversation. And it was a great conversation in which we talked about why she was just in Peru traveling there, and why I was in Ecuador serving with Compassion International and, and some of that work, and she asked uh, you know, why do you do that? And I had a chance to talk about my faith a little bit. And then she asked, well, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and, and this is the question that I love to avoid. Uh, I'm a pastor. Oh, interesting. What kind of pastor are you? Well, I'm at a, a church in Kearney, Nebraska. It's an evangelical free church, part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. It's part of association of church. Evangelical? Wow. Her eyes get a little bit wider. It's like, I'm talking to one of them? <laughs> I don't normally talk to your kind. Well, what is evangelical? And I love that question. Because it has nothing to do with CNN. Uh-uh. It has nothing to do with Fox News. It has nothing to do with politics. And she's at, well, what is an evangelical? And it's, it's one who is committed to the teachings and the life of Christ. It's one who believes that Jesus died and rose again victoriously over the grave, and, and we follow him. And, uh, and, and she said, oh, okay, interesting. And evangelical, that's different than what I thought it was. Yeah, it is a little bit different than you thought. Yeah. Um, but you actually believe that he rose from the grave? T tell me about that. Someone actually, you actually believe that? Yeah, I do. Let me tell you a couple reasons why. And, and I'm answering these questions about the resurrection and one question after another. And I, I can't get a, a word in edgewise before the next question comes up. And, and then finally, there's a pause in the conversation and I'm able to ask her, how about you? Do you have a, a faith community of some kind? And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm a part of a Unitarian Universalist church. And it's okay. And tell me what you believe. What do you believe there? What are some of your core convictions? She said, I'm, I'm not really sure what I believe. I'm more of a, a, of a question asker than an answer finder. I'm more of a religious seeker. I've never really been able to find any answers to these big questions. And I said, well, can we talk about that a little bit? And she said, you know, I've always found it kind of arrogant. No, no offense. You seem like a nice person. 
But I've always find it kind of arrogant and kind of intolerant when people say that they, they know the truth about this religion or that religion and that Jesus is the way to God and if you only believe in Him, then your life will change. And uh, I, I just don't know that we can know anything spiritually. And I, I find it arrogant when people believe they do. So we talked for a few more minutes and then she had to go catch her flight and so we exchanged contact information and it was a delightful conversation. I love those conversations. So much fun to engage with people and understand what they believe and just learn from them as you get to share a bit of what you believe as well. And, and we're continuing the conversation th through email since then. But in essence, she was asking the question, I believe in God, I believe in the universe, I believe in something, but I just don't know if we can know anything beyond that. And frankly, I find it intolerant and even arrogant to say that you do. What do you say to that? Friends, this is a very common, very challenging question, though, that comes up for us frequently. And we see that Jesus himself dealt with this question. If you go to the book of John, chapter 14, and then we'll look at John, chapter 18, a couple different passages here. In this first passage, Jesus is teaching on heaven and how you could get to heaven. And he's saying, uh, there's a way to heaven. And he's saying that I am the way to heaven. And there's this promise of eternal life for those who would believe in me. And I'm going to my Father and I will build a mansion for you there, build a house for you there. And we think of this as kind of a, an ancient question, that only the ancient, as a modern question that only modern people have to answer. But Jesus, again, 2,000 years ago, had to deal with this question as well. And he's talking to his, uh, his disciple, Thomas. And Thomas, if you might remember, was a doubter. He doubted a lot, and he was still loved by Christ in spite of his doubts. He still became a follower of Christ in spite of his doubts. And, and here he is asking questions in John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Well, what does Thomas ask? How is it possible to know the way to God? He says. And what does Jesus say? It's me. I'm the way. I'm the way to the Father. You you want to know how to get to God, you look at me, I'm, I'm the way, follow me. Jesus deals with this again over in John chapter 18 with Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate was a governor over the region that was called uh, Palestine at that time. It included Palestine and Israel today, kind of like a governor in the United States, only much meaner was Pontius Pilate. And uh, Pilate is about to crucify Jesus and he's asking Jesus a bunch of questions in John chapter 18, starting at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. You are right to say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth with a capital T. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what did Pilate say to him? What is truth? That is the ultimate postmodernist question. What is truth? Can truth be known? You speak of truth with a capital T. Can you actually believe in truth? How can we possibly know the way to God? How can we possibly know truth in the spiritual realm? This is the challenge today, at least one of them. And the challenge frequently uh, goes like this. It is intolerant to say there is one way to God. Correct? That is the challenge today. It's intolerant to believe that you have truth and that Jesus would be the one way to God or that there would be any other way to God, that that is intolerant. The, the anthem of contemporary Western uh, culture today is tolerance. And indeed, the greatest sin in contemporary Western culture produced by Hollywood and many universities and social media is intolerance, that if you are intolerant of someone else's views, you have committed the greatest sin. And so the way this frequently goes down is, I believe in Buddha, you believe in Muhammad, you believe in Jesus, and that's all fine so long as you keep it on your reservation. But the moment you bring it out into the public realm, then we got problems. Because these are truths with a lowercase t, not truth with a capital T, according to modern tolerance. Kind of like saying, I like vanilla ice cream. You like strawberry or chocolate. You happen to like Jesus. You happen to like Buddha. You happen to mishmash your religion into your own smorgasbord. You happen to ascribe to Christianity. But in the end, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. That's modern tolerance. The journalist uh, Steve Turner from Great Britain wrote a brilliant poem called Creed to describe modern tolerance, and it's quite long. I won't read it in full, but it, it's so brilliant in its description that i got to read it in part. This is the creed I have written on behalf of all of us. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove every, anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only, matter in, they only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end... If the dead have lied to us, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. 
We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets, lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, excepting, of course, the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. How true. How apt a description of contemporary tolerance. We believe in the flowering of our thought, that there is no absolute truth except for that one. And on and on it goes. Stated another way, this challenge frequently goes like this. Christianity is not exclusive. You all have misrepresented the teachings of Jesus, and God would never send anyone to hell. There's another way that this objection is frequently stated, that Jesus wasn't actually exclusive. He didn't actually say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He never actually taught on heaven and hell and nasty things like that. And many people in many different quarters today try to smooth over the rough places in every world religion such that they can make the argument that they're all basically saying the same thing. And we can kind of stuff these questions about forgiveness and the afterlife. But isn't it interesting that as you talk with people, no matter how hard they try to stuff the questions of forgiveness and the afterlife, still they rear their head. We still all wonder, could I be forgiven? We still all wonder, what will happen to me? What will happen to my loved ones when they die? And so these questions must be dealt with. The response to this objection that I would give anyway has three parts. Here's the response. The first one is, Jesus commands tolerance of people, but not false ideas. Okay, he does command tolerance of people. This is traditional tolerance that has been practiced by people across the millennia until the last 50 or 60 years in the West. We've always practiced traditional tolerance. Interestingly, many Christians are having a difficult time practicing traditional tolerance of people who disagree with them today. But traditional tolerance goes like this. I disagree with you, but I love you. I disagree with you, but I will fight for your right to disagree with me. I will honor you. I will speak of you in a dignifying manner. But do not ask me to call black white. And do not ask me to nod my head passively in agreement when you are making contradictory statements, like two plus two equals five. I won't passively nod to that. Or contradictory statements like you could be a married bachelor at the same time. Or contradictory statements like Jesus was a really good and kind moral teacher. He just lied about all that business of claiming to be God. Okay? These are contradictory ideas that cannot be held at the same time and still be true. But those who hold on to truth better, oh, we better do it in love. We better do it in love. The Apostle Paul so beautifully put it this way in the book of Colossians. He said, let all of your conversation be full of grace, 
Be gracious. Be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer anyone who asks. It's really interesting that our tone in talking with people, my tone in talking with Mary that day a couple weeks ago, was every bit as important as the substance of my answers. Every bit as important. You, you, you see, if she hears from me in that moment that I'm argumentative, if she hears from me in that moment that I'm looking down at her or insulting her beliefs, guess what happens? Her ears fill with wax. And she can't hear anything that I say. Tone is every bit as important as substance. When you're talking about the gracious one, you better be gracious. When you're talking about the salty one, Jesus Christ, you better be salty. The Chuck Colson Center has a graphic to describe the way many Christians have missed the boat when talking about religion and other divisive issues in our culture. And uh, Christians get on the computer sometimes. I've seen many, many Christians do this, where they get on the computer and they become Twitter tyrants and Facebook fighters. Do you know any of them? Facebook fighters. And the Chuck Colson Center describes it like this. It's a picture of a man punching his fist through the computer screen. And it says underneath that, outrage is not a strategy. And it isn't. Our outrage against those who might disagree is not a good strategy for engaging the world. And if you engage in outrage online, what will happen? You'll lose your witness. Your witness will be gone. You'll miss out on opportunities to testify to the beauty of Christ because ears have been filled with wax because of a negative tone. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it, who argued so masterfully for the truth of Christ, that he is Lord and he must be bowed to. And yet at the same time, he says, people are made in the image of God, as the book of James says, that we are made in the image of God. How is it that we could bless God and curse people made in the image of God? May it never be so, the book of James says. And C.S. Lewis argues so powerfully about this when he notes this. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you may talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Can I get an amen? I, I mean, this is the dignity that our God has ascribed to every person that we meet. And so we love people as Christ would, even as we hold on to truth with power. Number two, I would respond that all religions have points of exclusivity. The truth is, this is not a question that only Christianity needs to, needs to answer. All religions have points of exclus exclusivity. All religions speak of some kind of judgment. Islam, for example, 
says that if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, which you'll never know this side of eternity, then there is hell to pay. Judaism, for example, speaks of the realm of the dead called Sheol, which is not described precisely in the Old Testament, but it's a place of consequence. Likewise, Hinduism and Buddhism, we tend to think of them as these enlightened religions with all their lotus flowers. Well, guess what? Karma is your debt, according to Hinduism and Buddhism. It's your debt from previous misdeeds, from previous lives, that you're working off in every successive life, through every successive reincarnation. It's debt. You failed, you blew it, now you've got to work it off again. And it, I mean, it's Groundhog Day on steroids. All religions have points of judgment. Likewise, all religions disagree on certain truth claims. Buddhism was founded on a rejection of Hinduism and the caste system and the authority of the Hindu scriptures. Islam was founded as a rejection of Christianity and Judaism. And Muslims do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. These are self-contradictory ideas. They can't both be true at the same time. So the modern tolerance adherent is wrong. They can't both be true at the same time. Likewise, Christianity was founded on the belief that it's not based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. Okay? And all the other religions of the world and the natural ways that humans operate in worldview thinking, in philosophy, in religious thinking, is that you must do this and that and this and that to somehow measure up to God and maybe gain his approval. Maybe. And maybe he'll show you love in response. Maybe he'll re accept you in response. And that's what all the other religions of the world do. And Jesus enters in and he gives a very contradictory, a very different message that says, no, it's not based on all that you do. It's based on what I have done on the cross for you. Every religion has points of exclusivity. This is the nature of truth with a capital T. And third, I think we just need to be able to say to people as we respond to these questions, you maybe have this question today, that God doesn't want to send people to hell. That's not his desire to send people to hell. He loves people, but he will ratify our free decisions if we choose to live outside of his love and refuse his gracious offer of salvation that has been given to us. Now, if you have friends or maybe even people today who are asking this question, let, let me say, you got to empathize with it. You got to empathize with it. You got to feel the weight and the gravity of this question when someone asks you this question. Because anytime someone asks you the question, how could you say that, that Jesus is the only way and those who don't trust in him would go to hell? I mean, anytime someone asks that kind of question, there's always names and faces of family members and friends and loved ones behind that question. Isn't that right? And so we have to empathize with the intensity of that question. And then we have to provide a good answer. And the good answer is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world by his blood. And he set up the universe. He spoke and the universe leapt into, into existence. And, and he established the physical laws that govern the universe. And he established the moral order. And he also established his son as the one way to eternal salvation. And if he's God, 
then he has the sovereign right to do that. If he's all-powerful, if he's sovereign, he has the right to establish the way to life. But in his love, he invites you and me to that real, abundant, eternal life when we die and joyous life today. C.S. Lewis, well, once again puts it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, okay, God, thy will be done. It's not about me. It's not about worshiping the things that I've worshiped for so many years. It's about you. Thy will be done. Or God turns to them and says, okay, you wanted none of me for all of your life? Okay, have it your way. Thy will be done. Have it your way. Thy will be done. And the door will be locked. But it will be locked, as it were, from the inside. The door of hell will be locked, not because God wasn't gracious and generous in his provision, but because you you pridefully said, I want it my way. I want it my way. You see, Jesus will have all that will have him on his terms. He'll have you and me and all of our neighbors, anyone in this room, he'll have us if we'll have him on his terms. In one sense, Jesus is very exclusive. He, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's exclusive. But in another sense, he is the most inclusive. He says, it doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter how much you have failed. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter where you have come from. It doesn't matter what your mother or father believe. It doesn't matter what your husband or wife believes. I welcome you to eternal life with me. He is the most inclusive. Jesus says this. I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Just before he was crucified, he said, I will draw all people by my cross to myself. It's my desire to, to draw the world to me. Think of the Apostle John, who echoed Jesus' words here, and he's reflecting on Jesus' words, and he, he says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So while he's forgiven us, he wants to forgive those that we know. He wants to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. That's how limitless is the effect of the cross. And the Apostle Peter, I love this verse, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So some of you have been holding Jesus off for years. Could it be that God has not taken you away from this life because he's patiently saying, I want you to come to repentance, to enter into eternal relationship with me. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, the gospel message is this beautiful truth that God loves you so much that he created you in his image that there are no accidents in this room, that he formed you with a plan and a purpose for your life, but you sinned, and so did I. And it's the common reality of all of humanity that all have sinned and fallen short of our own standards, let alone the much glorious standards of God. Can I get an amen? We all have, we all have. We've all sinned and fallen short of our own standards, let alone God's standards. And God in his holiness will not look at our sin. He will not have relationship with people who are marked by sin. So he could leave us in our sin and we'd be hell bound. 
So what does he do? He offers himself. He gives his son. His son spills his blood to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not just for ours, also for the entire world such that all who trust in him by faith, all who acknowledge, yeah, I've missed the mark. I need your forgiveness. He gives us his perfection to cover over our imperfection and to bring us to God. This is the gospel message for you. And some would say, well, I I still don't want it. I, I still don't want it. I want it my way. And God would say, okay, in the end, if you want it your way, if you want nothing of God here on earth, you will get nothing of God after you die. You'll get nothing of the goodness of God, nothing of his presence, nothing of all that is good after you die. If you stand like this throughout all of life, say, I want nothing of you, you'll get nothing of worship. When you die, God will say, thy will be done. You see, the issue is not that God has only provided one way, is it? The issue is our pride. The issue is our saying, one way is not enough. I, I want my way. I'm so convinced that if God were to give us five ways to know him, we humans in our pride would demand a sixth way to know him. The issue is pride. It's not that God has not been generous. It's not that God has not been gracious. He has been more gracious than we could ever imagine. He has paid for our sins by the blood of his son. And Jesus says, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through me. And I will have you. Do you believe this? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given away. We thank you, Father, that you gave your son when you didn't need to give your son. We thank you, Father, that through the blood of your son we have forgiveness now and life eternal. Lord Jesus, we can only imagine how beautiful it will be when we see you face to face. We can't wait for that day, but for now we are satisfied in knowing that you love us, you accept us, and you bring us to abundant life beginning right now. I pray for my friends in the audience today. There are probably many here in the auditorium and in the venue who are struggling with this question. How could Jesus be the only way to God? And I pray, Lord, that you would cut us to the core of our being, that we would recognize the kindness and the love of our Savior That while we may not have all the answers, we can know this, we have sinned. And we do need forgiveness. And you have offered it by your blood. And so we receive it. If you're in the place today that you never received Christ as your Savior, there's there's no better day than now. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Receive the love of God for you from the cross. And then join us in taking communion as we remember all that our great God has done. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray together. Amen.